as we look at this little church in Philadelphia, this church that was going through great trials and living in a very evil world, Lord. Uh, uh, you tell this church that uh, even though uh, things are bad, that, that they're going to escape the worst of it, Lord. And, and this little church, as, as you're going to show us, is just a picture of the church that will be on this earth uh, when the great tribulation begins. Actually, Lord, you're going you're gonna to take that church out of here before the great tribulation begins. And that's the lesson that we're going to learn today. And Lord, we want to be part of that church. Or we want to be those believers who escape uh, the great tribulation that's coming upon this earth. And you're going to show us just how we can escape today as we, as we look at this little church in Philadelphia. Lord, we, we know uh, that we only escape by grace. We, we, all of us deserve your wrath. All of us deserve to die. But Lord, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us, Lord, uh, we're going to escape the wrath to come. We're going to live with you forever. Lord, we're going to see today you're going you're to give us a new name, and it's going to be the name of, of uh, your God and the name of your city and your holy city. And uh, Lord Jesus, we just thank you that that, uh, that that name means so much. We'll learn what that name is maybe today as we look at this text. So, Lord, I ask that uh, you be our teacher today, that, that uh, uh, you guide us through your word and by your Holy Spirit, that you anoint our hearts and, and souls to hear what you would have us to hear. And Lord, that we don't just hear these words, that we become doers of these words. And that, Lord, that uh, they take root in our soul and, and uh, we become different people because of what we hear today. Lord, we just ask the, you to bless our study again. We ask that in the name of Jesus Christ. It's in his precious name that I pray. Amen. You know... We're going to be looking today at the six of the seven letters that Jesus Christ wrote to the seven churches in, in Asia. Uh, we'll be looking at the Church of Philadelphia, and then next week we'll be looking at the Church of Laodicea as we finish up these seven letters. Uh, you know, I don't know about you, but going through this study, and of course I have to go through it with more attention and detail than you do because I'm the pastor, but, but uh, as I've been going through this study... Uh, God has used these letters to convict me uh, and help me to evaluate exactly where I stand with him, to convict me of the fact that, that maybe I've lost some love for Christ, some of the love that I had when I first was saved, to, com to convict me of maybe how I've allowed idols and the things of this world to interfere in my relationship with him. And so there's just all sorts of lessons in these uh, seven letters, but the last two letters that we're going to be looking at, the church at Philadelphia and the church at Laodicea, I think are the two letters that are most applicable to the church today, because the church at Philadelphia is the church that symbolizes the church that will be here in the end times that will escape the great tribulation. We're going to talk about that as we uh, delve into this church a little bit later here today. But then the church of Laodicea represents the false church, the church made up of false believers, the apostate church that will be here when the great tribulation begins, and that church will go into the great tribulation. Now, I believe at that time some of them will be saved, but uh, if you're a true believer here today, uh, more than likely, you could put yourself as a member of the Church of Philadelphia. And that's why this lesson is so pertinent. I told you when we were talking about how you interpret the book of Revelation, 
one of the ways you interpret it is historically. Now, I believe certainly interpreted it literally to begin with, but I, especially with the church at Philadelphia, Laodicea, I think there's a lot of symbolism there, and we'll see that here in a minute as we look at these churches. And I believe that we're in that church of the very last days before Jesus Christ returns. And if that's true, and you call yourself a Christian, let me tell you where you're at today. You're either part of the church of Philadelphia, and you're going to escape the great tribulation, or you're part of the apostate church, and you're going to go into the great tribulation. And so we want to make sure that we're of those who escape the the great tribulation. So we want to look very carefully at this little church at, at Philadelphia today. Now, just, just to introduce it a little bit, uh, Philadelphia is a little city that was in what's now modern-day Turkey. Uh, it sat in a beautiful valley uh, along the main highway uh, that ran from Rome into Asia. Uh, about, it was about, it sat about 25 miles south of Sardis. And so it was called the gateway to the east. And uh, uh, so there was a lot of, uh, kind of like Sardis that we looked at last week, there was kind of a hodgepodge of different people in that city. But it also was called the Little Athens. And the reason it was called the Little Athens was that there were so many temples and so many pagan idols there that it almost looked like Athens itself. And, and uh, not only were there these pagan idols and these pagan temples, one of the largest synagogues in the world was there in, in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, and so uh, you can see how this little church was facing all sorts of persecution. They were facing persecution from uh, the pagan Roman pagans, and they were also p facing persecution from the Jews. I mean, the city was called... Uh, you know, kind of like Lafayette, I think we've been called the friendliest city in the United States. I think that has a lot to do with how much we drink here, not, not you. But uh, Philadelphia was called, obviously, the, the city of brotherly love. But it wasn't showing so much love to this little church in Philadelphia. They were facing a lot of persecution. So, so let's, uh, but they were facing it, but they, they were holding up to it. And that's what we want to look at as we come to verse number 7. Look at chapter number 3 uh, of Revelation, beginning down in verse number 7. And J Jesus is speaking, and he speaks to, sends this letter to the pastor at the Church of Philadelphia, to the angel, the messenger of the Church of Philadelphia. And he says, write, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts, and no one opens. So let's, let's look at this description that he gives us right here really careful, carefully. First of all, he says, to the one who is holy and who is true. Now, in every letter, Jesus describes himself. And you take all seven letters and put all of it together, and you get this great description of who Jesus Christ is. He's almighty God. We've already established that. And listen to what he says here. He gives us this unique way of describing his absolute deity. He says he is the one who is holy. He is the one who is true. Look, Jesus Christ, God almighty, is the only one who can say he is holy. 
Now, I'm holy, but where do I get my holiness? I don't get my holiness from my own nature. I get my holiness from him. And so when he can come out and say, I am holy, he's declaring himself to be God. But not only is he holy, he's also true. That means that he's, he's the only one who has absolute truth. He's the only one who is absolutely holy and absolutely true. Now, why would he say that? Well, here he was in Philadelphia, or speaking to the church in Philadelphia. And here they were in the midst of all of these pagan temples and pagan gods. And they, there was a plethora of gods, and a plethora, let me say that right, of gods. And so uh, they, uh, they had their choice. I mean, they could, be a, they could be a Jew, and many of them were Jews. They could be, you know, worship Zeus, or they could worship the emperor. There was all sorts of choices uh, that, that they could make, and they had made the right choice, and they had chosen to worship the one who is holy and who is true. Now, how many, if you read about the idols that those Romans worshipped, that the Greeks worshipped in those days, were they holy? They were anything but holy. Were they true? They were anything but true. And so what Jesus is saying, he's not saying I'm a God among the gods. What he's saying here is I am the God. I am the one who is holy. I am the one who is true. I'm not a creation of your mind like these other gods are. I'm not a creation of an idol made with hands and stone or made by hands with stone. I am holy and I am true. And that means that he is the source of all truth. Let me tell you what, whenever we deny his truth, we have created an idol. There are so many believers, people who call themselves believers, who worship a God different from the God of this Bible. And that is idolatry every bit as much as it's idolatry to go and bow down to Zeus or bow down to a, 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 a statue of the emperor. All of that, uh, the only one who is true is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's the source of all truth. He's not a creation, he's the creator. He's our creator. And so he is holy and he is true. Now he goes on and he describes himself, and this is a very important description for us to get down. The world needs to get this down. Listen to what he says. He said, he has the key of David. He has the key of David. He who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Well, what in the world is he talking about when he says here that he has the key of David? What's he talking about? He's talking about the key that opens the way into the kingdom of God, into the messianic kingdom. This is a clear reference to a prophecy given to us over in Isaiah chapter 22. So flip back, hold your place there in Revelation, and flip back to Isaiah, get back to the Psalms and go a few books over. Isaiah is an easy book to find because it's a great big book. And find Isaiah chapter 22, and look at verse 22. And you'll see that this, is, this isn't a paraphrase, but it is a clear reference to this prophecy that Isaiah gave us in chapter 22. I'm in chapter 22, verse 22. He says, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. On whose shoulder? On Jesus' shoulder. On the Messiah's shoulder. 
He says, the key to the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, and he shall open, and no one shall shut. And he shall shut, and no one shall open. Look, he's the one who determines who gets into his kingdom. He's the one who opens the door. And if he opens the door for you, no one can shut that door. If he shuts that door, no one can open that door. And so that's what he's talking about when he talks about he has the key of David. He has the key to the kingdom of David. Go back to Revelation and go back to chapter number 1 and look in verse 18 and you hear him say the same thing about himself. I believe it's verse number 18. Yes, he says, I am he who lives and was dead and behold, I am. Am alive forevermore. Amen. 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 And I have the keys, the keys of Hades and the keys of death. In other words, I determine who goes to Hades and who dies. I have life and I determine who lives. You know what that means? That means that Christ has the keys to your eternal destiny. Whether you're going to be in Hades and then hell, or whether you're going to be absent from the body and present with the Lord, Christ has that key. And he's the only one who has that key. He has our entrance into the messianic kingdom. And uh, those who reject Christ, they're going to go to Hades, and then after the judgment, the, the, Christ is going to open the door, the gates to hell, they're going to be cast into hell. He's going to shut that door, and nobody will ever, ever, ever be able to open that door for you. And if he's opened the door for you into his kingdom, nobody will ever be able to shut that door on you. You know, you get a great picture of this in Noah's Ark. You remember how Noah preached for a hundred or more years that judgment was coming, he preached, he begged the people to get ready that, for the judgment. The, judge, the judgment was on the way. And the whole time he was preaching, the door to that ark was open. I mean, it was wide open. As, 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 John, as, as Noah built that ark, the door was left wide open. But people rejected the message of, of uh, Noah. They rejected this this idea of this coming judgment. And who were they rejecting? They were rejecting God. And so when the floods came and the judgment began, Noah and his family went into the ark. And who shut the door? God shut the door. And I'm sure there were people that went when they saw the rains and they didn't even know what rain was. The skies opened up and all of this rain was coming down worse than anything that came from this hurricane that came through here last night or came east of here last night. I mean, the rains were coming down, and they wanted to get in, but the door had been shut. Who had shut the door? God had shut the door, and no one could open that door, and they all perished. And that's the message that God gives to this world today, that judgment is coming. You'd better get your act together. And if you don't have your act together when the judgment begins, hey, the, the door is going to be shut. And there's not going to be any entrance for you, entrance for you into the kingdom of heaven. The, only Jesus Christ has the key into heaven, into the messianic kingdom. And listen to what he says in verse number 8. 
He says, I know your works. Now, whenever we see that, there's, there's, there's usually a commendation that follows that. I know your works. See, I've set before you an open door, and no one can shut it on you. Why can't they shut it on you? Why was the door open for you and it wasn't open for anybody else? Let me tell you why. He tells us, because you have a little strength. You have a little strength. Now, that's a commendation, actually. We'll explore that here in a minute. It doesn't look like much accommodation. If God said to me, oh, George, I got something I'm really proud of you about, you have a little strength. Well, thank you, Lord. <laughs> I would have liked it better if you said, Lord, you got a lot of strength. You're a strong guy. See that? But he didn't say that. He says, you've got a little strength. And you've kept my word. Now, uh, now with that little strength, what have they done? And here they are in the midst of all of this persecution, in the midst of all of these pagans. And listen to what it says. You have kept my word and you have not denied my name. Now that's pretty good. That's really good. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard this verse taken out of context a multitude of times. Somebody will tell me they're starting a new business and God told them that he, I, they, they claimed this verse. God's opened the door and no one can shut it. They're going to make a lot of money. That's not what this passage is about. Now, let me say this. The callings and elections of God are for sure. If God gives you an opportunity, no one's going to shut that door on that opportunity. I can tell you that right now. And there is precedent for that elsewhere in Scripture. But that's not the context of this Scripture at all, is it? What's the open door to? It's the open door to salvation. It's the open door to the messianic kingdom to what he's talking about here. So he says, I know your works and I have set before you an open door. In other words, I've opened the door for you to walk into the kingdom of God and you've walked into the kingdom of God and, and no one can shut that door. No one can kick you out of there, not even the devil himself. And, and, and so that's really, really good news. And, and not only is, does Christ have the key to the door, he is the door. He is the door. Remember what he said in John chapter 10? He said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. In other words, if you try to enter by any other door, you will not be saved. If you try to enter by another person, you will not be saved. If you try to enter by another religion, you will not be saved. The only way you can be saved is to come through the door, the door of the shepherd, the door of Jesus Christ. And, and here with these Philadelphians, you've got to give them credit because they had all sorts of doors to choose from. But they had entered by the right door. They had entered by Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ had unlocked that door, and they had entered into the kingdom of God, and no one, not even the devil, could kick them out. They were in there forever. They were there. Now, why had Jesus opened that door for them and, and not for the rest of the people in Philadelphia? Because they had a little strength. A little strength. They had a little strength. What was their little strength? Can you take a guess? What was their little strength? Their faith. Their faith in Jesus Christ. That was their little strength. So he's not criticizing them here. He's actually commending them here. Look, I've said it on many occasions. It's not the quantity of your faith that matters so much. It is the quality of your faith. 
And where do you get the quality of your faith? From the object of your faith. Who do you put your faith in? And so those of us who have a little strength, who have our faith in, in the right place in Jesus Christ, we can do mighty things for God, even though we have a little strength. In and of myself, I have a little strength, and all the strength that I have comes from my faith in Jesus Christ. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We're more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. If God be for me, who can be against me? I mean, I'm going to win every battle when I'm with, well, every war when I'm with Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, the Bible is replete with characters who had a little strength and did mighty things. I mean, you go back and look at Abraham, the father of faith. Oh, man, he was a mighty man of faith. God came to him and he said, Abraham, I want you to drop everything you're doing. I want you to leave your family, pick up what little things you can, and I want you to go to this strange land and you're going to have a son. Hey, Lord, I'm 75 years old. I can't have a son. My wife is 65 years old. I can't have a son. There's no way we can have a son. The Lord said, trust me. And he trusted him. And he had a little strength. And his little strength was his faith in the Lord, and the faith in his Lord allowed him to do mighty things. Let me tell you how little it was. He, he left and he went to Canaan, and when the famine came, he didn't have enough strength to stay, did he? What did he do? He went down to Egypt. So here was this man with a little strength, a little strength to, to the, the father of faith, who, who failed in faith because his strength was little. Man, I love the, the prophet Elijah. I mean, Elijah, you talk about a mighty man of God. A man of God who could pray that it wouldn't rain and it didn't rain for three years. Man, that's a powerful man. A man who went up on Mount Carmel facing 600 prophets of Baal who wanted to take his head off. And he went up on that mountain and, and with a little strength, what did he do? He called down fire from heaven and it consumed the sacrifice and the, every people fell on their knees and they said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Because of this mighty man, Elijah. And then Jezebel heard about what he did. This guy with a little strength. And he heard that she had heard. And he ran as far as he could, as fast as he could to get out of town. Because he was afraid. He was a man of like passions like us. With a little strength who did mighty things. I look at Samson. Man, Samson, man, you talk about a Little bitty Jew with lots of power. I mean, he had all sorts of power. He brought down, had the faith and the strength to bring down the entire uh, Philistine temple on, on top of all the governors and all of the kings and all of the princes. And he killed them all along with himself. Why did he kill himself? Because he didn't have the faith to resist a prostitute. He didn't have the strength to resist a prostitute. But he was a mighty man of God and he was doing mighty things for God. You know, that's why God can use any of us if our faith is in the right place. Don't ever say God can't use me because I've got just a little strength. Hey, if you've got a little strength and your little strength is faith in Jesus Christ, then your faith is in, in the Almighty and your faith is in the right place. And, and if you stay true to him, you can do just like these Philadelphians did. I mean, here they were. They had a little strength. And they stayed true to him. Look at the last part of that verse. And they did not deny his name in the midst of all of those pagans. 
in the midst of all of those Jews that wanted them dead, they would not deny his name. Let me tell you something. If you're out here today, you deny his name when you go out and you do evil in this world. You deny his name. You deny his name when someone comes to you and asks to, for you to tell them about Christ. Or are you a Christian and you say, well, no, you know, I'm not. You, know, you, you deny it. You deny his name. But you've got the strength to stand tall. You've got the strength to live righteously in this world. Not in your own strength, in the strength that God gives you through that faith that you have. That little strength is a mighty strength and it, that comes from God. And if you stay true to the Lord, great, great rewards. Look at what he says next in verse number 9. I mean, here were these Philadelphians that were being scorned at, they were being laughed at, they were being persecuted, and they were staying, staying true to the Lord, and this is what the Lord tells them. Hey, they're laughing at you now, but you're going to get the last laugh. Listen to what he says in verse number 9. He says, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. What's he mean by the synagogue of Satan? That's a metaphor for Jews who called themselves the people of God, and in reality, they didn't even realize it, but they were the people of Satan. That's true for a lot of churches, a lot of people who call themselves Christians. A lot of you really, not a lot of you, but there are a lot of Christians out there who call themselves Christians who really are the house of Satan. They're doing Satan's bidding, not God's bidding. They're living for the devil and not for the Lord. And, and the apostate church is nothing more than a synagogue of Satan. And so he says, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan. And, and you know, it's always been the case throughout history that the false church and the Jews, the false people of God, have persecuted the true people of God. But listen to what he says. He says, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet. Now, they're not going to bow down to you. But every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And when those people who think they're the people of God, who aren't the people of God, who are doing their thing their own way, who are living evil lives and yet calling themselves Christians, and, and then they're persecuting the true church, when that time comes, you will be by his side, and when they bow, they will see that you were right and they were wrong, and you will be vindicated. That's what he's saying here. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, they're liars, Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you and not them. You're the one that I love. You know, I believe that the remnant of true believers in this world is not near as large as some people think it is. I believe that there are a lot of apostate churches and of a lot of of people who call themselves Christians who are not Christians. And my, my desire is that everyone gets saved. I'm not condemning these people. But people have been duped by Satan. That's why they're called the synagogue of Satan. They've been duped into believing that they're doing the Lord's will when in reality they're doing the will of Satan. And I run into these people all the time and I used to argue with them. I used to love, I, I love, my wife will tell you, she's not here, 
so I won't have to say it. But my wife will tell you, I will say it, I love to argue. And, and, and I will used to argue a lot, especially with people who called themselves Christians, and yet they didn't believe in the God of this Bible. Their God is a different God. Let me tell you what, the God of this Bible, in the Bible, Jesus is none other than Almighty God. The God of this Bible is our creator. And how long did it take him to create this universe? In seven days. How did he do it? By his word. Friends, if you say he didn't do that, that he did it through revolution, that he did it over millions of years, you're calling him a liar. And let every man be, let God be true and every man a liar. Look, this Bible is true. And in the end, this word will be vindicated. And those who believe in this world will be, word will be vindicated. People don't believe in the flood. That God judged this world with a flood. They don't believe that God judges the world today. They got a different God from the God in the Bible. I, I challenge you, you go read the minor prophets we've been studying here on Wednesday night. And over and over and over again, God says, I set that desire disaster. I'm going to send that disaster. I, if a disaster comes to the city, I sent that disaster. I send plagues. I send famines. That is the God of the Bible. And if you believe in a different God, you believe in the wrong God. Yes, he sends disasters, but he also sends his grace. He's a God of grace. And people who say somehow you can earn your way to salvation, legalists who say that, they believe in a different God than the God of the Bible because the God of the Bible says that salvation comes through grace. Sanctification comes through grace. Glorification comes through grace. All of it comes through grace. I believe in a God that, that, that was behind every miracle in this Bible. Every miracle, good miracle. Now, Satan performed some miracles in the Bible too, but every miracle that was obviously a miracle of God, God did it. And if your God can't do it, you're worshiping the wrong God. And I'm not going to argue with you about that. You don't believe that that God can take a, prepare a fish for Jonah to live in, or really he died in and then spit out after three days, and he raised him from the dead. You don't believe that, you serve a different God. I believe God, if he wanted to speak a fish into this room right now to swallow us all of it, he has the power to do that. And, and, and that's the God I believe in. I believe when God says there's no other name under heaven whereby man can be saved but Jesus Christ, I believe that word. And those people who are saying you can be a Muslim and you're just getting there another way, or you can be a Buddhist and you're just getting there another way, they are blaspheming God. And one day, we, those that believe that there's only one name under heaven whereby man can be saved, we're going to be vindicated and they're going to be condemned. I don't want them condemned. But one day they will be if they don't turn around. And, and so, see, Satanists has has duped our entire society in believing that all roads lead to heaven. There is only one road that lead leads to heaven, and that is the road through Jesus Christ. I believe that there's the that very very soon, God is going to the time of the Gentiles is going to end, and we're going to go into the great tribulation. God is going to rapture His church. And then we're going to, after the great tribulation is over. We're going to go into the millennium, and after the millennium, we're going to go into eternity. When, when will that be proven out? When we are at that great white throne judgment seat before Jesus, and every knee bows. 
and we're there with him, and we will rule and reign with him forever. And so those who say otherwise to any of these truths, and every truth that I just talked about here comes from the Bible, and there's thousands more that we could talk about. But God is true. If God's word is not true at any point, what does that make him? That makes him a liar. There's one other thing about, I believe about this word. Every word of it, and we're told this in 1 Peter, was inspired by Jesus Christ himself. And if it's not true, then he's a liar. Find you another savior if he's a liar. But he's not a liar. And in the end, he will be vindicated. And those of us who believe he's not a liar will be vindicated too. And then he says in verse number 10, he says, because you've kept my command to persevere, to stand on this truth is what he's talking about. To stand on every word of this Bible. You know, people laugh at you if you stand on this Bible. They will absolutely mock you and laugh at you today if you believe God created the heavens and earth in seven days. If you believe God might be in a hurricane, he might have some purposes in a hurricane. They will mock you and they will laugh at you. But you persevere, you stand on this truth, and you don't deny his name. You don't deny his name. It's not just talking about denying his name when somebody, you know, puts you on the rack and say, do you believe in Jesus Christ? And, and then you say, no, I don't. That's, that's part of it. But denying his name is also based upon how you live in this world. You have a responsibility. You and I are ambassadors for Jesus Christ, and we deny his name when we live like this world. And it's wrong. And then the command to persevere is also the command to keep on going and not quit. Man, the church today is full of quitters. Quitters. First thing comes their way that it's difficult or tough. I mean, I had people that did children's ministry for two weeks and then, oh, man, I can't handle this. I'm not called to this. Well, what are you called to? Oh, I'm not, I don't know, but I'm not called to this. I mean, the first problem that comes along, they quit. They're quitters. They're quitters. And when you quit on the Lord, I mean, when you quit on your service to the Lord, you're quitting on the Lord. God doesn't honor quitters. So we're to persevere. We don't understand perseverance in the United States of America because we've never been through much. We're all a bunch of spoiled brats. I'm speaking for myself anyway. And, 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 and things get difficult and we all quit. That's why we don't get anything done because everybody quits. Because you, but here was this church in Philadelphia and listen to what he says. Because you persevered. You've lived for me. You haven't denied my name. You haven't quit. Watch this. I will keep you from the hour, hour of trial that shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on this earth. Now friends, I don't care how you read that. You have to have your head in the sand or be lacking some smarts if you don't see there that he's talking about the great tribulation. 
He is talking about nothing else but the Great Tribulation. And that's why I said this letter is so important. Because the church of Philadelphia is symbolic of the church that will, the true church that will be here in the last days just before the Great Tribulation begins. And here's what Jesus said. Because you're persevering when I come, and you hadn't quit on me, and you hadn't denied my name, and you're standing on truth, you're standing on this word, then I will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon this whole world. Now, the church of Philadelphia certainly was going through a trial themselves during that time, but that trial hadn't come upon the whole world. That was just upon a little area in, in Turkey, a little bitty town in Turkey, a little bit group of people in Turkey. So he's obviously talking about something much greater than the persecution that the church at Philadelphia was talking, facing at that time. He's talking about the Great Tribulation. Some will say, well, what about World War I? Didn't that, wasn't that a trial that came upon the whole world? You know what? That came upon most of the world. But there were parts of the world that weren't affected by World War I at all. World War II, same way. Maybe in a worse, or worse, maybe in a worse way, they were, they, you know, more people were affected in World War II than World War I. But still, there were areas of pockets of areas of this world where people weren't affected by what was going on in World War II. I mean, my mother lived on a farm. She lived on a farm, and they ate off the farm, and life went on just like it did every other day during World War II. They had their, my, my dad was off fighting in that war, and that affected her to a sense. But she wasn't facing any kind of personal pain or, or trial other than him being away. But when the great tribulation comes, every person on this whole earth is going to face terrible, 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 terrible difficulty and trials. Except those who have persevered. And God says, I will keep you from the hour which will come upon the whole keep you from the hour of the trial which, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth, to test every person who's still left on this earth, especially the church at Laodicea, especially those who call themselves Christians who really aren't Christians. I'm going to test them because that's their last chance. And there will be what we call great tribulation saints. There will be be people who are saved during the great tribulation and that's the purpose in the great tribulation otherwise God just could destroy it just like that he could destroy everything everything and every evil person just like that and, and start all over with his people and that's basically what's going to happen but before that happens he's going to he's going to get the Jews ready to receive their Messiah and he's going to give this apostate church this last chance to get saved and not many of them are going to get saved but some of them are going to get saved and I've got to tell you, we're living right this moment, I believe, in the age that Jesus was speaking of here. I believe we're in the very, very last days. Now, that might be mean that he comes in 100 years, but it very well might mean that he comes tomorrow. And... Listen to what he says. He says in verse number 11, he says, Behold, I am coming quickly. I am coming quickly. What's that mean? At any moment, he could come for his church. And so what are we to do? What are you to do? What, I mean, what are you to do to prepare for the coming of Jesus Christ? He tells us right here. 
Hold fast to what you have. I mean, hang on to your motorcycle and your golf clubs and your car and your house because you're not going to have it much longer. <laughs> no, that's not what he's talking about there. What do you have that's of importance? Your little strength, your faith. Hold fast to your faith, what you have, that no one may take your crown. How do we escape the great tribulation? We persevere. We hold fast to what we have. We hold fast to our Christian faith. I mean, really, you want to simplify it? We cling to the Lord. We cling to the Lord and we cling to his word. That's what we want to be doing. And we want to hold fast so that no one will take our crown. Well, guess what? If you got a little streak, no one's going to take your crown. Because Jesus has opened a door that no one can shut. He's opened the door for you into the kingdom of God, and no one can shut that door. You can't even shut that door yourself. He wouldn't have opened it for you if he thought you were going to shut it yourself. Jesus Christ is the one who opens that door. And he opened that door because you chose to believe him. And because you chose to believe him, he chose you in him before the foundation of the world. You chose, you reject him. He rejected you before the foundation of the world. That's predestination. But it also involves choice. It involves our choice. So guys, get packed. Get packed. He's coming soon. You better pack it up. You better get your soul packed and ready. You better get your life right with God. You want to persevere. You, you, don't, you, know, you don't want to be part of that church that goes through the great tribulation i believe part of the church will go through the great tribulation but you don't want to be part of that you want to be ready you want to be prepared he's coming soon he's coming as a thief in the night when we least expect it and he's coming quickly in the twinkling of an eye just like that you'll be with the lord or just like that you'll be left behind just like that. He who overcomes, verse number 12. How do we overcome? We overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by faith in His blood to purify us and make us righteous. That's the only way you can overcome. I mean, you don't overcome by your good works, you don't overcome by your morality, you overcome. By the blood of the Lamb. Now the blood of the Lamb produces good works. And it produces morality. But that's not how you overcome. We overcome by the blood of the Lamb. And he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he shall go out no more. Boy, that's an exciting deal right there. You look at a temple... You ever seen those pillars in, in temples? I mean, these giant pillars, maybe six feet in diameter, that are holding up this building. Only Samson could move pillars like that. They're immovable. They're stable. That's the picture that he's painting right here. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in my temple. Where's this temple, by the way? In us. He will make you stable. He will make you strong. He will make you courageous. And you won't go out anymore. You won't go out on him anymore. 
You won't drift away from him anymore. You overcome by the blood. You overcome and your faith grows. And your relationship grows and who wants to go out anymore? You know, the closer I get to him, the less I care about this world and the things of this world. I see things going on like these NFL players refusing to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance. You know what? I could care less. Shame on them. I just won't watch the junk anymore. You know, because my stability and my peace and my joy is not in a football game. Especially the Saints. If you put it in there, you're in deep trouble. My strength and my joy and my peace are in Jesus Christ. And the more by faith I come to him by his blood, the closer I get to him, the more less I want to go out from him. And the more I want to be near him. Then he finishes this verse with a riddle. Look at the riddle. I will write on him, him who overcomes. The name of my God. Now this is Jesus speaking about his God. And the name of the city of my God, the New Jerusalem. Now, he's not going to write, the New Jerusalem is not the name. The New Jerusalem, and it really shouldn't even be a capture. The New Jerusalem is a description of the fact, or it's denoting the fact that Jerusalem will be made new. It'll be a heavenly city that comes down from heaven, which is the New Jerusalem. That's not the name. It might be, you could call it one of the names, but... But we'll talk about that in just a second. But this is a mysterious name here. He says, I will make him a pillar in, my t- in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, it's the new one, which comes down from heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Now that is quite a riddle. You know, I don't ever like to look at a scripture and not try to solve the riddle. I want to dig and I want to find out, can we actually find this name? Well, i got to believe it's going to be a name that's in the Bible somewhere. And it's going to be a name of God. So how about Jehovah Jireh? The Lord will provide. I'd, I'd like to have that written on me. I mean, Jehovah Jireh? I, I, because the Lord has provided for me so wonderfully since I've been saved. Really my whole life. Jehovah Rapha. The Lord who heals. And we'll be eating of this plant, this healing plant that keeps us healthy for eternity. I mean, what a great name for the city and a great name for God. Jehovah Rapha. Or Jerusalem itself. What's Jerusalem mean? Shalom means what? Peace. Jehovah is peace. I mean, that would be a great name for the city. And, 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 you know, maybe in some circles that's what it'll be called. And those are really good names. But I think we can narrow down the possibilities a little bit more by looking in Scripture. So go with me to Jeremiah chapter 23. I'm going to propose two possibilities. And I can't tell you which one's right. I think in the end both of them are right. Jeremiah 22. One of my favorite 
names for God we're going to be looking at. I'm sorry, Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. Look at verse number 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. What's he talking about? Who's he talking about there? Jesus Christ. He's talking about the Davidic kingdom. He's talking about the Messianic kingdom, the very thing we're talking about here in Revelation chapter number 3. He says, a king shall reign, none other than Jesus Christ, and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. In, in his days Judah will be saved, all of, and Israel will dwell safely. And now this is the name by which he will be called. Da, 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 ready? That wasn't a very good drum roll, but... The Lord is our righteousness. Jehovah to sit canoe. The Lord is our righteousness. That will be the name of our God. And you can get some more evidence that this might be the name if you go with me over to Jeremiah 33. Look down at verse number 15. In those days and at that time I will cause to grow up to David a branch of righteousness. There's the Davidic kingdom again and Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He shall execute judgment and righteousness on the earth. Thank you, Lord. In those days Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell safely. And this is the name by which she, the new Jerusalem, will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Jehovah to sit canoe. What a name. What a name. And I'll have that name written on me. And it'll be the name of the Lord Jesus. And it'll be the name of the city. The new Jerusalem. Well, I think there's another name. I think there might be two names. Or one of the other names. That... The city might be called and the Lord might be called that we might be called. And, and that name's found over at Isaiah chapter 60. Flip with me there real quickly. Isaiah chapter 60. Arise. Arise, my people, the Lord says. And shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. That's the rapture. That's the, the, if it's not just the rapture, it's God light coming upon us. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, the great tribulation, and deep darkness the people, but the Lord will arise over you. Just like over this church in Philadelphia, just like over this church in the last days, the Lord's going to arise on us, and his glory will be seen upon you. The Gentiles shall come to your light. Now he's talking about the Messiah. And the kings to the brightness of your rising. And then in verse number 14, he says, and the sons, jump all the way to 14 now, and the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bow to you. That sounds very familiar, doesn't it? That's exactly what we were looking at in Revelation chapter 3. And all those who despise you shall fall prostrate at the soles of your feet. Now in one sense this is talking about the Messiah 
fall, people every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that he's Lord. But it's also talking about you and I who will be at his side. And they will bow prostrate to him, but they will see us there and we will be vindicated and they will know that what we believed was right and what they believed was wrong. What did we believe? We didn't create what we believed. We believed what's in this word. And then jump to verse number 16. You shall drink milk, the milk of the Gentiles, and milk, of, and milk the breast of the kings. You shall know that I, Jehovah God, am your Savior. You get that? Jesus is Jehovah. Our Savior is Jehovah. And your Redeemer is the Mighty One of Jacob. Verse number 18. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders. Amen. Now, I remember being in a Hebrew class, and we were translating the book of Isaiah. And I came to this verse, and I was actually absolutely floored when I saw what it, the Hebrew translation is here. He says, but you shall call your walls, the walls of the new Jerusalem, Yeshua. That's the Hebrew. Salvation doesn't do that justice. Right there in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, is the name Yeshua. Anybody know anything about the name Yeshua? That's the name Joshua. That's the name Jesus. In the Greek, that's the name Jesus. The walls, you shall call your walls Yeshua and your gates Hallel. Praise. Talk about a good name. A good name for the Lord. A good name for you and I. Praise Yeshua. Yeshua means Jehovah is salvation. Praise Yeshua. Praise Jesus. I don't know which name it is. It doesn't really matter because both names mean the same thing. Jehovah to sit canoe means Jehovah is my righteousness. He imparts his holiness to me by his blood. Jehovah is my salvation. Yeshua, Jesus, is saying the same thing. It's by his blood that I'm saved. And I really like that name, praise Yeshua. Because that's what we're going to be doing forever and ever and ever. The last verse in Revelation chapter 3 he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing to us these things about your name, the name that's going to be on the New Jerusalem, Lord, the name that's going to be written on us. Lord, really written on our hearts and written on our souls. Lord, when we see you, we're all going to cast our crowns at your feet. We're all going to realize just how holy and righteous and wonderful and true and loving and mighty you truly are.
and that none of us are worthy. Worthy is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, only you are worthy. Lord, and we praise you, Jesus. Yeshua Hillel. Forever we praise you, Lord. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.